0: What's going on, everybody? Spencer Gray, welcome to The Gray Report. If you're a multifamily investor you know, you're thinking about getting into the multifamily investing business or just the multifamily industry, maybe you're already in the multifamily industry, this is the show for you where every week we're breaking down exactly what's going on in the market, breaking down the latest research reports, all the new data sets, articles, everything that comes out related to the multifamily industry. Real estate industry in general, but also the economy and all those macro events that really kind of just drive the market in general, while also, you know, paying close to the very hyper local markets and sub markets that tell their own unique story. I am at on location right now. I'm in West Palm Beach. I've been at a family office conference. I've been talking to a lot of uh, family offices, multifamily offices, wealth managers, really trying to understand where the wealthiest families in the world are allocating their capital towards right now. There's some asset classes that you could probably guess, but there's a few others that I think you may be a little bit surprised. Um, so you know, let's bring Matt Bossnoggle in. let's get into it, what I've been seeing, also what's going on in the market. So let's just get into it. Oh. All right, everybody. Matt Bosnago, bring him in like we do. I don't know why we say we're bringing you in. Matt Matt Bosnagle's here like he is every week. He's a director of Hello. communications and marketing at Great Capital. If you are receiving the Great Capital newsletter, it comes out. Our main piece comes out every Thursday. We send you a little update on Sunday. He's the master that's putting this thing together, doing tons of research. He's got a whole team behind him. We're really proud of what you do, Matt. It's a great newsletter. Sign up, GreatCapitalLLC.com. How's your week going? What's what's going on there up in Indianapolis? Pretty good. Second, you left, cold snap. <laughs> so we're right. all we're all bundled up. You know that's what happens. That's that's timing your your trips perfectly. Timing is timing. Whether in the market, it's difficult. You know it's hard to get it right. But when they say you know timing the market is just as good, and you know sometimes you get lucky. But you know all right, December Indianapolis versus December Florida. Yeah, that's advice. an easy choice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, first, Matt, I just wanted to kind of share with you, we were talking about a little bit, but I've been having some really interesting conversations. And so I wanted to share with you, all viewers, listeners, kind of just what's been going on. I'm at an event, uh, it's a three-day event, family offices from mostly the United States, but also from really around the world. I've been speaking to folks from you know South America, Central America, Europe, Russia, and then you know all across the United States. A lot of commonalities, a lot of focus on, you know, what do we do in this inflationary environment that almost no investment advisor, wealth manager has really invested in a environment with a rising inflation and potentially rising interest rates. You know, I was having a hmm. conversation that you really have to be in your mid to late 80s to have been an active you know, wealth manager during the, the early to mid 70s. To really have any frame of reference of what's going on. You know, maybe yeah. you could have been, you know, late teenager, early mid-20s, and you're still working now. And so maybe you remember it, but you weren't necessarily in the trenches making those decisions. Hmm. So we're really entering into a you know a new economic time that you know is really unprecedented, not to mention the fact that it's you know, driven by a pandemic. And so there's a lot of just interesting confluences and everybody's trying to kind of figure it out. So I paid a lot of attention and had some really interesting conversations. There were a handful of asset classes people are investing in that I found interesting. I'll save the obvious one to kind of the end, but one which is sort of surprising, you hear a lot of talk about, but it that's cannabis. Ton of family ops, investors in general are trying to hitch their wagon to, you know, this whole green rush that's happening. You know, because there's a, the majority of countries in the, United, in the United states in the United States right now have some form of you know, legal marijuana or cannabis, whether that's from the medical side or full recreational. And without the banking system really being able to really handle cash flows coming into these dispensaries, it's created this weird patchwork and a lot of problems. And when there are a lot of problems, you know, there's people trying to find solutions and you create a solution, you've got a pretty good investment idea. And so there's a lot of, they see this as a revolution and it's taking over the cats out of the bag, jeans out of the bottle or whatever. How do you get involved in? It? I mean, it's growing so fast, but a lot of families don't necessarily want to invest in the production of like the growing. Mm. but it's all right, how do I invest in the processing systems for yeah. either on the banking side or that's the packaging side? Oh, yeah, or maybe it's just the retail or the real estate. like okay, i'll i will I'll buy the warehouse and you know lease it to you, but you know, I don't want to actually invest in the business itself. It is like it's a normal job now. It's a growing normal industry,
1: and it is—it is not the the uh, hippie weirdos at all. These are like clean cut, this very polished image that these early adopters,
0: at least in a lot of places, of uh, you know like legal cannabis organizations are taking. It's big business, and yeah. you know I think that, that there are a lot of you know kind of more amateur or you know kind of the hippies or whatever you want to call them who got into <laughs> it, and some of them probably know what they're doing. You know, some don't. Is you know. I was having a conversation. It's one thing to, you know, grow some, you know, grow some weed in your basement with a couple of grow lights. It's a whole other thing to really be in the business of industrial um, agriculture, yeah. industrial, yeah. you know, plant production. I was in the agriculture industry for a while. I owned a, a hop business. We grew hops. We also were brokering hops for the craft beer industry. Hops and marijuana are actually they're in the same family. They have a lot of relation. We were having conversations. with a lot of people in the cannabis industry at the time. I talked to a lot of people who were getting ready to get into the space and they saw it as like, they were producing widgets and like, we're going to scale and do all this stuff. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like, well, have you ever grown anything at scale? It's not, it's not, it's not easy. It's, it's hard to really scale up. And again, you could have a grower who's got some experience, but again, do they can they actually scale what they're doing. So mm-hmm. um, there's been a lot of bifurcation, but the cream's rising to the top right. Now. People who are serious yeah. know what they're doing they're creating some investable companies. And
1: and I think it is worth mentioning too that a lot of these states have significant hurdles for companies to 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 jump through that make it that make it a little bit more difficult to enter the space and the fact that there are companies that are still doing that and still at least as far as I know they're making a lot of money on it is a good sign. Now it could be a little bit of like regulatory capture and that these companies have a hand in um kind of suppressing the new uh, new businesses getting on board, but it does seem like it seems like, in spite of a very tight and regulated control in some states, that there are, there are businesses that are making that are making profits. So yeah, oh uh,
0: yeah, for yeah. sure. So the next piece is I don't know why I think these two are related, but uh, but crypto, you know, obviously the huge crypto craze. We've talked about cryptocurrencies. We track you know cryptocurrencies on Gray Report on the newsletter. Less interest in buying the actual tokens or currencies. More interested in back-end technology and just blockchain-oriented technology. I could multiple times, like, yeah, no, I'm not really investing in the coins. You know, Maybe I, I bought a little Bitcoin here or there. But they're really interested in just blockchain technology and practical solutions and applications that are really solving problems. Matt, we were talking just before we went on, there's a lot of solutions in search of a problem. A lot of discussion of tokenizing things that don't need to be tokenized, you know, putting things on the blockchain that doesn't really, you know, help solve a problem. I heard someone talking about, not this conference, but watch a video recently, this guy talking about these decentralized autonomous organizations that are essentially run off of smart contracts. Basically, think of a company, but its operating agreement is all in the smart contract. And it mm-hmm. is really pure, purely democratic organization of where you know your tokens and voting rights and all that and it's all digital it's all done on the blockchain this idea was basically to create like a like a, a gym like a fitness gym and he basically said how people were going and that early investors were going to get a certain amount of return and then you'd get these nfts as your membership cards and you could get like perks for going to the gym and I'm like you why there's no problem you're solving that yeah you know it's like you could just because he was like they don't have a one piece of equipment so I'm gonna open my own gym well you could open your own gym right now get investors Give them, you know, whatever return profile for whenever they invest in different rounds of investment. And, you know, you can have punch cards or whatever member benefits. You don't need NFTs for that. Like it might be cool to do, but there's no problem being solved. But in other cases, there are.
1: And that's what seems to be the most interesting for me is is like what what are their opportunities? Because if you had to start from the ground up, if there were not systems, it it seems like it would make sense to, to, to implement some blockchain technology to track transactions and uh, especially, you know, you get like a deed or, or a contract, you know, that's on the blockchain and there's, it's locked down in a way that papers and files may not be. And it seems like that could really help, but there's a lot of people and there's a lot of systems that's already doing
0: that. And it would take yeah. a whole lot of work to just cool. switch it right over. And that's the problem is that we've, got a, we've got a system that, you know we... We've been doing it, it's been fine. You know, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bath water. But I do think, you know, just think about operating agreement. Even though you're laying out how everything should happen in a business with certain events, there's still interpretation. Language gets put in that it is, you know, purposely vague for whatever, you know, whatever reason. And there can be some interpretation. Some people don't even look at their operating agreement or follow it. You know, what a smart contract does is it takes all that. You know the opinions out the interpretations and getting a lawyer to look out, it's it, it removes the trust there's no trust involved it's just truth like hmm. you don't have to trust anybody it's a 100 percent. it is what it is a smart contract it's it follows the math yeah. and the math doesn't lie so i think that from a financial perspective i think is very powerful and it does solve multiple problems of you know if we've got this document now Three different people are going to interpret a section, you know, couple different different ways. Really interesting conversation. Fast forwarding to continue to talk about real estate, but is the tokenization of real estate in this debate? It was a really interesting round open roundtable discussion that I was involved in about the whole concept of the tokenization of real estate. One group, you know, was really making some headway. Haven't got it completely figured out. They're essentially doing multiple. Reg A fundraises and those Reg A investments are going to be tokenized and you put on the blockchain and eventually the Reg A piece goes away and dissolves and then they just have the tokenized real estate. They haven't done it yet, but they're in the works right now, setting up their Reg As.
1: What would that allow you to do? That it, that
0: that opens it up, right? Well, so that question is: Well, what what's the point? And what problems are you solving for? The first problem you're solving for is liquidity. Right now, in real estate, there are no real secondary markets for you know units of private placement. So you invest in you know real estate syndication, you have that unit, but if you want to get out early or if you want to buy in afterwards, there's no real secondary market. It's kind of a long process. Oftentimes, you have to get permission from the manager, the sponsor. You know, there's no real open market, so it's just negotiating. You know, what am I going to pay for? What are you going to buy it for? If it was tokenized you can just sell that, that token that includes the membership to that investment on, you know, theoretically, any exchange that allows you to sell. it. Hmm. There's no permissions necessarily required, although I guess theore- theoretically they could be, but what the problem it's solving for is liquidity. So all of a sudden you invest in a real estate project and it's doing really well, like really well. Like, so you know, so you know, we're gonna we'll talk about apartments, you know, they've increased the rents, you know, NOI is up, Doing really great, you know. It's got good track record. You invested, you know, before they bought it or whenever. You may want to cash out for whatever reason, um, but you don't want to wait for you know yeah. the sponsor to sell. You can go on to an exchange, to sell your token right away, and there's no restrictions. And and then the big, big question is, well, you know, the price, you know, it's got it has to be relative to the actual fair value, intrinsic value of the asset. It's like, well, yeah, it's sort of relative. But people, what what really matters? It's we're really allowing the market to take place. An individual could say, okay, so that that token is so it's throwing off an eight percent cash on cash return. I think that there's more upside to the project. I'll pay twice what you paid for it. I'll take a four percent cash on cash return because I believe in the upside. And so we're allowing the market to take place to so really set these prices you know, as the project is going on. And so you're adding a lot of higher frequency trading possibilities and price discovery on these, you know, what were formerly private placements. And would really, it, it could really change the market because then all of a sudden, as the comment was, you guys like, well, the value has to be related to the real estate. The response was, well, what is the value of AMC and their, you know, cash know. That have to do with the price? I was
1: going to say, well, volatility is my, uh, is my, kind of my concern. The volatility
0: there, but... and speculation. Yeah. In real estate, we're like, well, the reason we like real estate is because, well, real the issue was, okay, well, does that make these real estate investments more correlated to the market? We like real estate because of its uncorrelated factors to public markets. Higher frequency, higher volatility does that. Uh, we All of a sudden, you're more correlated and i think that that could be the case it doesn't make real estate a, a poor you know a worse investment compared to any other type of you know public security that you can buy but really the result of all of this is you're making the market efficient yeah real estate is very efficient now i could say now you could say i have the opinion that real estate is a great investment because of the inefficiencies you can take advantage of that but efficient markets are better for the market. Yeah, and it for sure. Eventually, can be less volatility. And so. and with
1: volatility, there is an association of a of a larger upside if you you know if you're making the right decisions. And but my my bigger point would be that there is a fundamental aspect of real estate. It's going to be a physical asset. Its value is still going to be tied at least somewhat to the to yeah. uh, the kind of the cash flow that that will present. And that's not going to change through the course of an investment. And it's
0: really no different than any other com- company. And really the derivatives, um, the financial derivatives, whether that's be you know, options or you know, different types of stocks, different types of derivative instruments, it's really no different that's already happened. But you're doing on the blockchain, which I think yeah. you could argue is just a much better system. And to your point, if we threw everything out, we had to start from scratch, we would use the blockchain. Yeah. And so it's really no different theoretically that's already happened to the financial system. It's just being done in maybe a, a better way. And it's also, it's very similar to what happened in the '80s with REITs. REITs allowed individuals to buy commercial real estate on the stock market. You know, to buy a fraction. It's the fractional fractionization of real estate. I can take hundred dollars, invest in a company that's buying a skyscraper in San Francisco. Now, the same thing is happening is going to happen with tokenization. I can buy take. I'm going to buy fifty dollars of a token. Um, Invest in multifamily property in you know Kansas City or wherever, and I can sell it. And that led to this whole idea of you know kind of the old guard saying, "Well, why why would I do this? I don't, I don't need to do this, and I'm probably not going to do it." And that's okay. What they weren't understanding from my perspective is this opens up real estate investing to a whole new cohort of investors. Crypto investors, millennials, Gen Zers who still like the idea of buying real estate, but they're doing on the but they want to invest on their phone. They want to invest through Robinhood or wherever, and they get crypto. They get the blockchain. It it makes sense for them, and so you're growing the pie of investors into real estate. Not to mention foreign investors. It really grows the pie now. Regulation is that's a whole other you know can of worms that I don't even know where to start because it's much more unregulated and i think regulation is going to still be slow to catch up until they make some make a mistake and they you know they, they easily you know screw yeah. things up because they don't understand it but it was fascinating discussion and the feeling and what people are saying is that it's going to be here sooner than we think yeah um, prediction blackstone is going to be having tokenized funds in the next 18 months
1: well, and and I could, I could see a lot of uh, a lot of firms doing it for just just because they speculate and they they know where it's going, and some are going to do it because it's appealing. Some are going to do it, and this is from a marketing perspective because it'll get it'll get them noticed. But there's I, I don't think that there's a, a real good reason to not try this out if you're if you're able to. Um, I, I think, and really that's
0: that's what I'm waiting for because I we've talked about this a lot. In the past, this, is, this isn't the first discussion that we've had, you know, at least internally about mm-hmm. tokenization, different ways to do it. I don't want to be necessarily the first or our investors to be the, be the guinea pigs. Um, yeah. I want to find a structure that really makes sense, that's solid. But as soon as we can find that, I think that having that as an offering makes a lot of sense because I think it is the future. Spencer, what do you think about
1: the metaverse?
0: You know, surprisingly the Surprisingly, metaverse. You know, I think. You, I think it's. We have to talk about it. Surprisingly, not as much conversation about the metaverse at this conf conference. But the whole buying real estate in the metaverse, I'm conflicted because it's like, I guess I don't see why not. People put value to things. What you know, yeah. we, we things are valuable as we put we give it value. You know, there's no inherent. There's no inherent value that you know really exists so it's outside uh, like, you know cash flows and I don't know it's fa- it's fascinating I'm not gonna go buy um a big chunk of land in the metaverse but I don't know maybe yeah. we should I saw something on, online today it's like you're gonna get left out and you're gonna someone said and this it didn't make it made zero sense but they're like you can be rich in the real world but poor in the metaverse like if you want to <laughs> be poor in the metaverse and my thought was like that's dumb because there's an equilibrium. There's going to be you know, changes. Yeah, and I was saying during Sapiens and talking about how quickly back in you know fourteen hundreds or whenever when the first Italian like you know Mer- you know Marco Polo times Italian merchants go into China, mm-hmm. Chinese going to you know back to Italy. The at first you know the Chinese were like we don't we have yeah we got gold. What you guys want? You guys want gold? Like and they're like and they're like. You, the Italians cared about, wanted gold. There was yeah. a for gold. I'm well, sorry. And the Italians wanted like the spices and like the dyes and everything. And But the Chinese didn't, they had those. They didn't care about gold. Eventually the prices of gold and those spices were so different that there was this big arbitrage. You could like get gold for cheap in China and mm-hmm. bring it back to, it, to Italy, you know, along with the spices and dyes and whatever. Didn't take very long. Even though you had to, you know, thing about going from China to Italy back in the 1400s, it did not take very long for those prices to reach equal, equal liberty. Yeah. So. Well,
1: my my point, and at least my thought of metaverse, it's it seems like a fun. Um, it seems at least viscerally like a novelty. But but uh, I would be remiss to say that I wouldn't I, I want a great capital beachhead in the uh, in the metaverse, some quiet little corner. Proposal.
0: Let's get let's get on it. That'd be. That'd be right. I don't know what I don't know what we do there, but yeah. it's hang well. On. It's I
1: I think that there is there is a benefit to to looking into it. It is a new technology, and yeah, I think that us ownership not a not a significant one would would help would help us discover the technology. So,
0: yeah. yeah, yeah, you know, it's one of, one of those that's like okay, goes zero, you know, it's fine. It's amount, you can lose. It's like going to a casino. I mean, yeah, and that that's how I I view cryptocurrencies you know, kind of back in the day. It's like, I'm not going all in, but like, all right. With a little bit that if goes zero. Yeah. Then the last, you know, private credit was, a lot of people look interested in private credit, looking for yield. Everyone's chasing yield. You know, people looking for, you know, you know, venture capital is always of interest, um, family offices. But then, no surprise, real estate. Everyone's looking for real estate. Hmm. It's such a great inflation hedge. Everyone's trying to get, get yield, trying to find growth. Multifamily. Multifamily, industrial, industrial. Then hmm. throw self-storage into that industrial, manufactured housing and yeah. the multifamily, but residential and industrial assets where everyone wants to be. Sort of some interest to office, eh, retail, hotels. Not a lot of good news on hotels still. Yeah. They're like still below 2019. And you know, in resort oriented hotels, they're doing better. It's still a lot of the business hotels you know, between Zoom and everything else, uh, it it's, there may have a hard road ahead. It yeah. could be some opportunities at some point. Could we'll be catching a falling knife. We've looked at a couple of those hotel to multifamily conversions, which I think is going to continue to be an opportunity because a lot of those are, a lot of the other uh, conversions are some of those business travel destination yeah. hotels. So, all right, Matt, that's, uh, you know, that that's kind of what the, the scuttlebutt was at this conference and
1: yeah that's really i think that's really interesting and it's good to it's good to know that this is still being discussed and that multifamily specifically it has a powerful place in these discussions and conversations oh, that yeah. you're having
0: it's well let me just put it in perspective talking to any big family office they're not they're not just investing in real estate although <laughs> they are all investing in real estate like there's not one that the lowest percentage of their allocations is like 15%, but it's 50, but th- you see 30% quite often, you see 75% being allocated to real estate. I think wow. 30%, 25 to 30% is about the average I saw for family offices, their allocation to real estate. And, and I, think, I think Camden does a study that actually breaks it down specifically. This is just my anecdotes of talking to mm-hmm. 30 or so family offices this week. To them, multifamily is a no brainer. I mean, it always has it has been it, it always will be they're all in it, they're looking for different regions, different geographies. a lot of people have already invested in the Sun Belt. you know they're in Florida they're in Texas, they're looking for something else to diversify and that's where great capital we invest in the midwest, and that's a little, one of our you know many differentiating factors and why I think we were able to you know gain a decent amount of traction but you know one quote i I heard is you know if you're investing in multifamily in industrial with a long term out outlook it's very difficult or almost impossible to lose. Not that you can't people find ways to screw things up. But if you are half a brain cell, multifamily and industrial, you're going to be in a good spot. So yeah. It's important not to lose. (laughs) I want to lose. No, well, and that's the thing because you know some investors and they've got a pretty short time horizon and I get it, you can make more money, higher returns, higher risk. But Like man, if we can just take this whole variable of time and just make it not an issue, you know, timing the timing anything—it's hard. You can be right, but you can not be at the right place at the right time. If you're in the market, you're gonna for the duration, you're gonna come out all right. I mean, pandemic, can't time can't time a pandemic, but Mm -hmm. if you were in the market already beforehand you don't have to time the pandemic, it just, it just happens. If you understand the fundamentals and, you know, we're, the way we see the fundamentals, we got quite a, quite a bit of legs. Uh, to yeah. So for sure that that's the report from the conference, Matt, you want to pop right into this um, NAR. Yeah. I think that that,
1: that drives well. I mean, I'm always, I'm always looking for a, a nice segue, but I think that this does segue into the decisions that, some of your family offices that you're talking to are making between, you know, uh, office or hotels or or industrial or um, multifamily, and yeah. NAR does a great job every month. They come out with this. I always look forward to it. Not the least of which is is its ability to track all of these different sectors, and you can kind of figure out you know where the top performers are, where the bottom performers are, and it's not a spoiler to say that <laughs> to say that. Multifamily is doing well again this year, this this month. Specifically, I think they do also talk about, and this is another thing I think that's interesting and a little bit unique about real estate over over other, uh, is place is so important. And not all multifamily is, multifamily is not a monolith. Multifamily is not a specific, it's not like an industry. Well, it is, I guess, the, the multifamily industry. But if you're buying multifamily properties, there's a difference between a property in Miami and a property in Tallahassee. And some of these and I just like on page uh, 11 of this report, they have uh, they have a list of these of these cities where you can find potentially profitable deals where the rent growth is super high. The vacancy rate is super low. And you see a lot of Miami is up there, but uh, other, you know, there's Detroit, Columbus and Cincinnati. There's some there's some Midwestern places, too. And and it's really across the board. Where you know, Omaha, some Great Plains states, Sioux Falls, Chattanooga, Knoxville, there's a lot of smaller cities and smaller locations, and this is just kind of the tip of the iceberg. and we've gone through this before if you really look at submarkets in place, you can get so granular when you're talking about an individual property and choosing to invest in it. It's just another repeat of uh, of it pays to it pays to pay attention and to look closely because, Sometimes the opportunities are not where everyone's paying attention, and the, and the market is such that right now you'll find something if you look hard enough. That, cap,
0: I don't understand their cap rates. Yeah, me neither. It does seem a very rosy. I, well, they're just wrong. You're not <laughs> buying eight caps in, in Columbus.
1: Yeah.
0: You're not buying anything above a five just about anywhere. Certainly not in Miami, Florida, Tampa, Florida, or Lauderdale. You're buying sub threes right now. So I think that that's where I don't and they see they get got this data from CoStar CoStar cap rate data cannot be the best one it's kind of blended from they're using a longer um time frame it's also a lot of different asset classes the CoStar cap rates are always significantly higher than um what's going on on the ground um now you can say oh maybe you're just overpaying that's no it's it, it's just they're I mean, they're taking information from you know a quadplex, uh, you know, or, oh, okay. you know a five unit deal sells mm-hmm. for a an eight cap, and they're not selling for eight caps. So I, I don't I don't know where they're getting this data from, but it flies in the face of all information I, I, I've seen, um, and, and not just anecdotally, but from other reports. I haven't seen. I mean, the the average cap rate in the United States right now is four um, and a half percent. They they have New York at a 5.5%. five and a half percent. Five New York City hasn't been a plus five cap market and Probably over a day. So to take the cap rates out, I think the year-over-year rent growth and the vacancy rate is definitely good to look at and absorption as well. But their cap rate is because they're trying to understand with yield anyway. So enough on that. That's just my criticism for that particular piece of data.
1: Yeah. Um, so and just as it compares to other um, to other sectors of the real estate. It does talk about multi or, or industrial demand remaining strong, the office, the office market, there's, you know, kind of a modest, a modest performance to say the least. There's not, it's not doing as well as, as people were really hoping. And, but in for retail, the, uh, the occupancy is actually increasing and that seems to be recovering a little bit. Hotel market is also recovering, but I think that also has a longer way to go perhaps than, uh, than the office market. Yeah.
0: Again, just from the anecdotes this this week, the ADRs, um, average daily um, rent, still way below um, where they have been historically. Um, in another, there's a lot of forbearance in the hotel industry. Um, and what I found interesting, I didn't know, a lot of the, the flags, they have these things called PIPs, which I don't know what it stands for because I'm not, the, I'm not a hotel guy. But eventually, it's like required CapEx. You got to You got to put in new drapes and new TVs. Like you got to, you got to update. You know they they want to have uniformity in their properties, and they did not do tip or pips. Last, they they have suspended pips. You don't have to put more money into your hotel. Um, they are going to be restarting those, and so hoteliers um, are going to have to start spending more money which some aren't going to want to spend the money and are probably going to want to sell so I think we're going to see some distressed situations it'll be it'll be interesting to see over the next the next couple of years I think
1: yeah i just want to call your attention just want just really quickly on page 2 of this um of this report there is a nice chart that looks at the uh rents and again this is based on um this is based on the uh costar data still but it says rising rents Page, as, two, page two. Uh, I'm sorry, it's page page six. But you can see, uh, and and I I like this because it has a long um a long time period where they're measuring this in quarters from from 2011 to 2021, and you can really see multifamily take off. Um, whereas offices, you know, offices doing modestly. Like I said, it's really um it really suffered. Industrial has a very smooth transition, it, but it, it is super dramatic how how quickly multifamily has grown. Um, and retail is actually seems to be, seems to have a similar upswing, but there it's just, it, you can see at a glance how
0: how different the performance is in these. Okay, so Matt, um, Burkadia had a really nice piece on really collections and rental payments.
1: Yeah, I I wanted to call some attention to this because for a while our newsletter tracked the NMHC um, rent payment rate and i'll get into that in a second but this one really really did a good job of of digging into the data that you that you don't really see in the nmhc rent payment tracker um, specifically it's talking about how rent payments are lagging in class c properties it is worth noting that year over year rates of class c collections declined much more in 2021 than they did in 2020 and the current payment rate is around 86 percent um, i won't say what this might mean about the economy in general, but I will say that this tracks with the improved rate or improved rents that we've seen um, for for lifestyle renters uh, rather than uh, renters by necessity. Um, so Class A and Class B properties have been doing well in terms of rent growth as opposed to to Class C properties. Um, now both of them are are experiencing significant rent growth this year, but Class C is lagging, and the rent payment rate seems to be correlated with that, uh, with that rent performance yeah. um, collection rates are a little lower on, um, on, on some locations where, where a greater proportion of, of owners are not larger companies like in uh, in New York city, there's a larger proportion of smaller, maybe these are individual owners that they don't necessarily have the systems in place to get rental assistance yeah. or classy um, for classy renters. So it's some of these markets, have collections that are trailing a lot more than others specifically new orleans is sitting around you know 85% in collections um, as opposed to somewhere like la where it is like a 94%. so there's a little bit of a difference here and it is yeah. and, and it i think this really opened my eyes and again like i said we haven't been following rent payment that much because the story about rent growth i almost thought okay we don't have to worry about paint if rent growth is this high,
0: then it seems rent, to apply. But, if, but you, assuming people are paying. Yeah. But um, if you can have the rents be whatever they want, you get a great rent growth, then no one's going to pay the rent. You know, and actually pays the rent, yeah. then, you know, well, does it doesn't really matter if, you're, if your rent's higher. It's interesting because on one hand, I would say, okay, well, maybe there's a little bit of a relation between the extended unemployment benefits that burned off, mm-hmm. I think, starting in July. But the, the Class C properties, they were already substantially below A and B. That being said, there definitely was a, even more of a dip down, really, kind of after uh, in July itself. Um, yeah. not substantially, but a few percentage points. Um, I also uh, I'm wondering if um, you know the if the if the rental assistance not coming through because it, it's, it's theoretically um, you should be able to pay your if you can't pay your rent, there is assistance out there, unspent rental assistance. You know, mm-hmm. Has it been getting out quick enough? Does everybody have access to it? Again, that's a very local issue because Is they're being distributed yeah. to the states, they're being distributed to local localities, different organizations are, are, are providing this assistance often with local um, organizations. So it, it's very, very balkanized. It's very, it's very, you know, it, it's not uniform. Um, by any means, it's still probably better than the federal government doing it. Um, that just, be very efficient but still it, it's definitely not perfect um you know i think the class it'll be interesting i will we keep tracking wages to see if wages in that bottom quartile are going to start moving yeah it's sort of the reason why we focus on class a and b properties um also and we used to do more class c assets and you know we still have a few in our portfolio um a few that you know it was a limited partner investor in, and they they had major collections issues, and they've gotten much better. They're back in the '90s. They were back in the mid '80s um, for a while during the pandemic. But you know we've got another real, you know, Autumn Trails. I would man, I would say is more or less you know a class C asset. Physical condition is more of a B, but the rent level is more C. We're like ninety nine percent collected. It, it, yeah. it's incredible. I want. I'd like to say that's the team and everything. It is, but. It's still you, you have a great team. Still, people don't pay, so I, I can't really explain that. Take it. Keep doing what we've been doing. But uh, yeah,
1: I'm not going to speculate about k shaped recoveries or anything else other than this number is worth watching. And um, and I'm going to segue a little bit into the NMHC uh, rent tracker. Yeah. Uh, because if you look at the progress of rent payments from and. From 2019, 2020, and 2021, they have these year over year. You get to see kind of three years in line. Um, And this is only tracking from July to to December. There is a general trend, it seems like, from rent payments go down a little bit in 2020, they go down a little bit in 2021. Is this, uh, you know, when I first looked at this, it seemed like a pretty easy, you know, a, a, a pretty easy conclusion that, There were still going to be this consistent lowering, but then I thought about it, and I'm a little less alarmed. (laughs) So at at first I thought, uh, you know, we were talking about this by the way in 2020. We we said yes, these are lower rent collect, uh, you know, these are lower collection. This is a pandemic. This is a fluke. But then if you see continued lower collections, if you see continued lower collections, then you start, oh, is this a pattern? And I still think, you know, these three years are are. The most horrible years for looking at a pattern because everything seemed to be unique from the year before. But still, three years is that uh, there's something that's got to be to it. But what I really think that we're seeing instead, yes, there may be a continued amount of decreases, but the curve is flattening. The decrease from 19 or from 2019 to 2020 was a lot larger in general, you know, in the aggregate than the than the decrease from 2020 to 2021. So it's still going down, but it's not. It's not going down as much, it, uh, and it looks like uh, there's a lot, is a little bit more of an optimistic story to tell here in these numbers than you would think if you just, uh, you know, if you just drew, drew a straight line. Uh, yeah.
0: So that's you know, I mean. yeah. September seemed to be, you know, the only kind of buck the trend, you know, really for the on the downside, seventy two percent. Now, um, this is for the first week, I think, collected, not necessarily at the end of the end of the month.
1: Yeah, and if you they, scroll they, they down to September. the. If you scroll down, there's a full month um, figures and you can kind of see, but this is compare yeah, comparing the three years and you can see this general progression um, August, it's a little bit better this year than last year um, but boom 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 boom. and uh, again, I think that what we're seeing is um, is a flattening here's and and that one promising sign, and, and is what I, and just this is just for me looking at the numbers a little bit, is that the is that the decrease has not continued with any significance through twenty twenty one. End of month rental payments were around ninety three percent at the beginning of this year, in um in January, and this is if you download the, download the data tables. <laughs> yeah. But from the data tables, the the first month of of rent right in January about ninety three percent, and then the and then in November. About ninety-three percent, so it's fairly stable. And, and again, uh, and some of this is seasonal, so you have to kind of compare winter with winter. But um, but largely, I think that we have uh, we have kind of staunched the wounds of uh, of rent payment decreases of twenty twenty, and we are making a recovery. I can I have a little bit more confidence in thinking about these numbers and thinking about what what the implications are, rather than just glancing at it and
0: seeing this like shocking three years of, of decreases. Yeah. So. Well, I, I definitely think it's something we need to keep paying attention to, keep tracking. I mean, we really have for the last 18 months or so, really since the pandemic. Yeah. We were just, you know, pins and needles, March, April, May, June 2020. Um, so we were, okay, it's not completely falling out. It's a little bit of issues, but it's on the it's not really it's been on the margins, but it's still okay, which direction are we going? Now, from a pure fundamental standpoint, the slight loss in collections has been offset by mm-hmm. record occupancy and rent growth. Yeah. Um, that's pure financials. I think the issue is definitely people to pay. How much of this is psychology, you know, with everything that's going on to people didn't think they had to pay we realized that wasn't the case. But I, I don't know if it's a mindset thing on the margins, but um, it's, it, I think we have, we have to keep tracking. Yeah, yeah, I agree. All right, Matt. This was a unique episode of The Gray Report. You know, we hit kind of what's going on. Family offices got into the other great reports, NAR, this Mercadia Real Page piece. You know, though, I like staying on track of this stuff as much as possible. One resource to help us do that, we built out um, really, Matt, you were major architect behind it, is grayreport.com. And you ask yourself, what is grayreport.com? Well, it is the premier multifamily intelligence aggregator built by Gray Capital. It started out as being a, really a compliment to our weekly newsletter, saying let's keep people up to date every single day without bothering them with email every single day. Um, if you want emails from us every single day, let us know. Maybe we'll do a special, you can uh, individual subscription. We really we want to we want to be respectful of your, be um, respectful of your time. Um, but Maz really been able to develop this great system aggregating a lot of different content. We've got a lot of RSS feeds going on you know, little kind of you know, team of folks that are helping us keep this thing going. But it's updated every single day, not just articles and research reports, but also, you know, videos, podcasts, market updates, everything you need to really stay on top of things. And it's not, we've got plenty of original content, but it's content from all over the place. And, you know, other syndicators, research groups, data, um, analytics firms, it's all here, greatreport.com. And if you haven't signed up for the Great Report newsletter, that is okay. You haven't completely missed the boat. There's still time. So don't miss out. Sign up for the Great Report newsletter. Um, you can get that sign-up page directly at greatcapital slash newsletter. All we need is your email address. We'd like to know your name, but all we need is your email address. So hop on over to greatreport.com You can find links to all this stuff. If you're ready to take the next step of, uh, you know, all right, I want to start investing in multifamily real estate. I'm looking for professional team. To do it, we'd love to have a conversation with you at Great Capital, especially if you're an accredited investor, because most of our investment offerings are only open to accredited investors. We're a firm. We have over $500 million of assets under management, 9,000 units across investor portfolios. Um, you know, Our portfolio, we've got over 40 assets of commercial real estate assets that we are invested in. Um, so great team of experts. I'm very proud of what the team's been able to do. We'd love to have a conversation with you. The best way to do that is to join the Gray Capital Investment Club. You can find that over at graycapitalllc.com. Now do that now because we are getting ready to launch a fund, the Gray Fund in January. If you want to be one of the first investors to kind of get all those that information, good to sign up for the club now because, you know, we are going to be there's going to be a minimum investment of $100,000. It's a hefty minimum investment. Our minimum investment is actually going to be going up after the first six months of our fundraise to $250,000. A lot of this is because we have a lot of large investors who write multi million dollar checks, but we want to allow anyone who is serious about getting allocated to have that lower minimum investment of $100,000 in that first six months. You say, What are you guys talking about? Your minimum investment is typically $50,000. Well, the fund, we're going to go out and buy seven to 10 assets. So if you think about it, If we're buying 10 assets and invest $100,000, that's really a minimum of $10,000 per deal. So in a sense, we're lowering our minimum investment, but we don't want you to invest in just a deal. We want you to believe in the strategy, trust in great capital, and uh, be part of the team. We're investing our own capital. We'll probably, from my family office to just my own capital, we'll be investing anywhere between $10 and $20 million of our own cash into the fund. So this is significant skin in the game. If you'd like to invest alongside us, full alignment of interest, we'd love to partner with you. So again, hop on over to GreatCapitalLLC.com, join our investment club, schedule an investment strategy session with um, one of our investment professionals. We'd love to have a conversation with you. Matt, any, any closing words? What do, you have? what do you have? What's going on? I mean, I'm not, in, I'm not in the office. Alex is in the office. Again, we're out here West Palm Beach, working really hard on the beach. Like what's in store? You guys like?
1: we're we're uh, we're staying warm. It's fine. We're we're fine here. Don't worry about us.
0: <laughs> it's fine. How's the heat? It is <laughs> it's, it's warm.
1: It's uh, we're staying warm. I find I finally found the uh, thermostat right outside my office, so I have it. I have it set to a
0: balmy seventy-two. Oh, okay, there we <laughs> go. Good stuff. Awesome, man. All right. Well, we really appreciate um, everyone who watched this video. Please give us a comment. You know, tell us what you think about what we were talking about you're not subscribed, hit the subscribe button. That way you're going to get you know, these updates. You know, we, we don't, we're not going to bother you. But, you know, once we do these videos once a week and, you know, gently press the like button, it would, shows us, okay, we're, we're on to something here and let's keep doing it. So thank you for watching this, Matt. Thanks again for being on The Gray Report. All good yep. stuff. See you right next week.